morning to you. My name is Darren, and uh, I'm one of the shepherds on staff. Excited to dive into Genesis. Actually, we're, we're going to be looking at Genesis 35 and 36 this morning. So we're taking kind of a, a large chunk of Scripture. Uh, in essence, what 35 and 36 will do, and we'll spend more time in 35 than 36. 36 is primarily a, a genealogical record, and I'll talk about that some in a second. 35 and 36, essentially Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is kind of wrapping up uh, the stories of, of Isaac and Jacob and Esau. Not that Jacob's story will continue to some degree, but basically what happens here, we're going to be in 35 and 36 this morning. We're going to take a two-week break for, uh, for Palm Sunday and for Easter in the next two weeks. And then when we come back after Easter, we'll dive right into Genesis 37, which is where the story of Joseph begins. So I kind of want you to understand that if you've got friends or coworkers, people you're going to school with, those who might be interested in jumping in, but maybe feel overwhelmed by engaging with an ongoing study in Genesis that feels kind of daunting, 37 will be a great place for people to jump in the Sunday after Easter because we're starting that story of, uh, of Joseph. It's a great launch point, great starting point, and we'll be then finishing Genesis as we get into the summer. But here in 35 and 36, what we find is a story that I think is really timely for us, even as we head into Easter. So uh, you've probably already seen some of our uh, some of our branding. I don't know what you want to call it. I guess it's branding for Easter. We passed out those flyers last week. There's door hangers today. You've seen the big banner that's hanging outside. Uh, our Easter theme this year is revive. And on Easter Sunday, we'll be talking about revival. The fact that the Lord Jesus came and he died in our place. He took our sins upon himself. That he died and that he rose from the dead. That he extends to us by his grace this very same resurrection life. That it can be ours. We're going to talk about that on, on Sunday, Easter Sunday. But this morning, what we find in 35 is a, is a bit of a message about revival but it's not for those that, that are unaware of who Jesus is or for those who are unaware of the resurrection life that he offers. We'll teach that message on Easter Sunday. This morning, there, there's a message for all of us who are already followers of Christ. Those of us who are on the pathway of discipleship. I'm guessing that for many of you, the reason why you've gathered for worship this morning is that in one way or another, you acknowledge that, that Jesus is worth following or worth paying attention to. And yet in our lives, there can be drift. Uh, there can be a sort of sliding slope away from fidelity to who he is, the revelation of Jesus in our lives. Um, it's possible to kind of wake up sometimes and recognize that somewhere along you got off track, somewhere along the line you got off track. We're talking about the story of Jacob. Uh, if you'll remember two weeks ago, we studied Genesis 34, and I don't know how you could describe a chapter in anyone's life that is more off track uh, than what we see in 34. In 34, we see the slaughter of all the men at Shechem. We see the violation of Dinah. We see deceit and manipulation. We see the use of God's sign of the covenant circumcision as a way to both destroy all the men at Shechem, but then to plunder the city. And at the end, the only thing we hear from Jacob at the end of 34 is, man, this is really going to mess up my reputation with the surrounding people. We, we don't hear him grieve. We don't hear him weep over what happened to his daughter. We don't hear him scold his sons. And so we can look at Jacob in 34, and if you were here for that study, we were certainly looking at Jacob in 34 and going, this, thing's, this guy's kind of come off the wheels a little bit. Like, where, where is God's man, right? So we come to 35, and we see that God now speaks and says to Jacob, bro, we, we need to get back on track, right? We need to get back online. We've, we've had a little bit of a drift. We've had a little bit of a, of a sliding away, and we need, to, we need to refocus our attention on the things that I've called you to. And so 
God comes to Jacob and he says, let's go back to Bethel. Now, that name might not mean anything to you at first, but if you've been a part of our ongoing study, when we were in Genesis 28, you'll remember Jacob was running for his life. He had uh, taken the birthright and the blessing. Esau wanted to kill him, his brother. And so he's fleeing and God meets him. God meets Jacob and shows him a dream uh, of a ladder connected to earth and heaven and angels uh, ascending and descending. And, And Jacob has this kind of revival moment where God affirms his covenant with him, where Jacob pledges himself to follow God and to be his servant. He, he puts up a pillar there and he pours oil upon it. Very similar things to what we see in 35. There is this kind of transformational moment in Jacob's life in, in Genesis 28. But then following Genesis 28, we see all of the drama with Rachel and Leah and with Laban and all these things. So there's this, look, none of us will live our lives without experiencing some drift. You know what I'm talking about? Drift away from the things that are most important. Drift away from the things that should be our priorities. None of us will live our life following Jesus without moments of drift away from a hunger for his word or a passion for evangelism. Like, it will happen in our lives that we will drift. And not because we get up in the morning and we go, you know what, I think I want to be a little less attentive to, to God. Or, you know what, I think I want to care a little bit less about my neighbors today. Or, you know, I kind of want to make my political opinions more important than my faith. None of us sort of get up in the morning and make a decision to drift. That's why it's called drift. We slide sort of inadvertently. I, I was talking with my wife about this, and she reminded me when, uh, when my daughter Lily was born, we bought this uh, Nissan Armada. We were living in the mountains at the time, and we bought a Nissan Armada, big white Nissan, uh, and we made the mistake. We had four three kids at the time, and then Will would come along shortly, so we'd have four. But we made the mistake of buying this and buying it with the light brown interior. You know what I'm talking about? If you've ever bought a brand new car, there's a thing that I think happens with new car owners where universally, I think we look at one another and we say, we're never going to have food in this car, right? <laughs> we're never going to have food in this car. And the reason we say that to each other is because we've had other cars in which we had food and it was a catastrophe, right? So you get a new car, it smells good, it's kind of shiny, you've just spent a lot of money, and you look at each other and you say, this car will never have food. And you mean it, right? You mean it. No food in this car. But the pressures of life, right? The long road trip where you don't want to stop and get something on the way, so you grab French fries and 75% of those end up in the seat pocket somehow, right? Uh, life happens, yogurt gets spilled, cereal gets spilled, toast gets chewed up and spit out. I don't know. I I remember taking the Nissan Armada several years later, uh, taking the Nissan Armada into the Honda dealer for for just a regular tune-up, you know, like the, whatever, the 100,000-mile checkup. And I remember when the technician opened the door to our Armada, he made an audible gasp (laughs) because of the way the interior looked, right? And this is a car we had committed not to have food in, But in that moment, I think he was sort of contemplating, should I call the police? Because it appears that someone's been murdered in this car, right? Like there was, it's like a crime scene inside. He actually looked at me unsolicited and said, maybe next time don't get the tan interior, right? Which was a little hurtful. It was a little hurtful. There was never a point along the way where Shannon and I looked at each other and said, now let's have food in the car. We never decided that. We never decided that we wanted the car to look like a crime scene inside. That happened because little bit by little bit by little bit, the pressures of life, the stresses, the kids, things we weren't paying attention to, or maybe things we were paying attention to, in in the ongoing pressures of life, we just sort of drifted away from that commitment. 
And that very same thing happens in our lives as followers of Jesus. Not that we get up one day and say, I want to grow cold in my passion for Christ, or I want to grow cold in my love for my neighbor. But the pressures of life and the stresses, no matter how committed we were at first, we, we can tend to fade. And Jacob certainly has gotten off the path. So it's meaningful for us this morning. I want us to hear a revived message for us. We're going to hear a revived message in two weeks for those who, who haven't known Christ. But for those of us who are disciples this morning, there's a call to revival. That isn't for once in our life, that it's an ongoing call to revival because it's, it's who God is and it's who he knows we are. It says in Genesis 35.1, God said to Jacob, notice that this call to renewal comes from God. God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. God comes to him and knocks on the door, essentially, right, in his heart, and says to him, let's get back on track. Let's go back to Bethel. Remember Bethel? That place where you and I communed with one another, and I called you and covenanted with you, and you were excited. And you built an altar, and you made a sacrifice, and you swore to follow me faithfully. Can we get back to that place, literally and figuratively? And what I love is not only that God prompts us to renewal, that God not only prompts us to revival, but I love that that Jacob heard him, And didn't object. You know why I think Jacob didn't object? Because I think Jacob just lived through Genesis 34 and he didn't like the look of his own life either. We look at Genesis 34, you know, these thousands of years later and we go, man, what a mess. How do you think he felt? I think there are some of us, many of us, who at different times, maybe not today, maybe last week, or maybe for you it'll be in two weeks. But for many of us, it's not that we need somebody else to tell us we've drifted. We know we've drifted. In some sense, sometimes we're just waiting for God to say, hey, can we, can we get back to Bethel? Can we just kind of, can we get back to the way things are supposed to be? Because I think Jacob acknowledges that things are off the tracks. And I think we know that as well sometimes. So Jacob's response is immediate. It says in two, Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I've gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. In response to God's call to go back to Bethel, Jacob uh, calls his household, his circle, to a couple of different things. Jacob looks at them first and he says, we got to put away our foreign gods, our false gods. And you'll note, they turn their false gods over, right? Now, I don't know how that registers with you. Maybe in your head you're like, what are the people of God doing with a bunch of false gods? Well, the text doesn't tell us whether those are false gods that they've just acquired. Remember, they just plundered all the people at Shechem and took all their stuff. So it's possible that they currently have all this treasure or plunder, if you will, and it includes foreign gods and false gods. I actually think it's probably more likely that they had drifted from fidelity to God alone. I think that because we know from earlier stories that Rachel and Leah had foreign gods in their own household, right? So there's a possibility that over time, They had just started getting lackadaisical in their fidelity to God, their faithfulness to God. Well, the first thing that that Jacob comes to his family and says in response to God's prompting is, we got to get rid of our idols. We got to get rid of our foreign gods. And I would want us to look in the same way and say that if you are able this morning to look in your own life and acknowledge that there's been some drift, the first way to respond in obedience to God's call back to fidelity or back to renewal is to look at the places where false gods have taken root in your life. And and admittedly, it's probably unlikely that anybody in the room has like a little carved 
tiki statue on there, you know, like the one that wrecked Greg Brady so bad. You remember that? Uh, it's, it's unlikely that, that you have like a little graven image in your house. Most of us are not idol worshipers like that. It is po- it's possible that you have uh, like a carved image of a false god in your home. More likely in America in 2020, we've got all kinds of false gods, but they're the gods of success and they're the gods of power and they're the gods of sex and the gods of pleasure and they're the gods of influence and the gods of social media savvy and wanting to be an influencer. There are all kinds of false gods you may be worshiping and they don't have any statues that go with them, but they are in essence dictating your choices, where you go, what you do, how you talk, how you dress, what you post, what you don't post. What jobs you apply for, what jobs you do, how you spend your money, all of those things are not dictated by a a care and concern for who God has created you to be or your sonship and daughtership, but rather at some point the gods of this age have sort of drifted in and they've started informing your decisions. They've started informing the places you go and the things you choose to do. Jacob looks at his family and says, we got to get back on track. And so let's get rid of our foreign gods. Can I just say to us this morning, Fullerton Free, it is worth taking the time to look at the places where you've drifted and you're worshiping Jesus, certainly, but you're also worshiping at the altar of, of false and foreign gods that, that need to be purged and, and cleaned out. He looks at his family and he says, let's get rid of our foreign gods. Let's cleanse ourselves. So there's a call to holiness or purification. And then he says, let's reclothe, right? Let's redress. And I don't know exactly what Jacob meant by that, but I find that very moving, especially in light of the fact that for us, Today, we are called to clothe ourselves in Christ. We talk all the time about the fact that the very purpose for the church existing on earth is to reveal Christ. That that as Christ is revealed to us, that then Christ is revealed in us so that Christ can be revealed by us. And when we experience drift in our own lives, the first thing that goes is the revelation of Christ. Because your neighbors and your coworkers and your friends and your family, they look at you and they, they can no longer see Jesus accurately revealed. So I love that Jacob looks in his family and he says, let's get rid of the things we're worshiping that aren't God. Let's clean ourselves up and then let's put on new clothes. Because I look at my own life and I think there are many times when I'm, when I'm trying to get back on course that the key for me has to be redressing myself in the character and heart of the Lord Jesus in gentleness and lowliness and compassion in care for the poor and care for the lost in care for for those who, who don't know Christ to see them reconciled with God. So he says, clean yourself up and put on new clothes and then let's go. So there's movement and obedience. He says, arise and go up to Bethel, verse 3, so that I may make there an altar. They go, they make an altar, they worship. Right. So there's hearing God's voice. There's getting rid of false gods. There's purifying oneself, being intentional to put on a, a new set of clothes, if you will. And then moving in obedience to the place that God had called them to go. And when they get there, they worship. I like that formula, right? For what it's worth, I like the sequence of events there. God's response to that is to reaffirm his covenant. The reality for us is that we don't have to have God's promises to us uh, recommitted, right? We don't have to have God reconfirm to us. Our, Our salvation is secure. When we talk about drift, we're not drifting away from our sonship or our daughtership. We're not drifting away from forgiveness. We're not drifting away from the love and affection of God for us. We don't drift away from those things. What we drift away from is God's purpose for us after saving us by his grace, right? I think sometimes as Christians, we get confused because we spend appropriately, we spend an amount of time saying we're not saved by good deeds. We're not saved by by the things we do or the places we go. We're not saved by our efforts or our striving. And that's true. 
We are saved by grace through faith and and by grace alone. It is God's work on our behalf. But what sometimes can happen is in our affirmation of being saved by grace, we miss the fact that in response to his gracious salvation, we are called to live lives that reveal him in our holiness and in our love for one another, right? There There is a response. There's a life that's meant to come. So there is a call for us to purify ourselves. And the Bible's clear about that. Passages like 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16 says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I'll be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Chapter 7, verse 1 says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Notice the sequence there in verse 1 of chapter 7, 2 Corinthians. God has made his promise, and that is secure. We can't drift from his promises. He is faithful. But because we have these promises, let's make the effort to not drift, right? Similarly, Hebrews 12, 1 through 3 says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. There is a call for us to refocus our attention upon Christ, to be inspired by his life and inspired by his sacrifice. And so there is a call to, to remove the things that have got us tangled up, to remove the things that prohibit us from running the race that God has called us to, to look at our life and get rid of the foreign gods, to clean ourselves up and put on Christ afresh, to be obedient to his call in our life and to worship him along the way. Jacob does all of these things. And and that's great. Jacob desires to, to, to get centered on Jesus again, to, or on God again, to go back to Bethel. But that doesn't mean his life is without difficulty. It doesn't mean that his life is without hardship. God reaffirms his promises, reaffirms his new name. But this chapter 35 also holds some things that are really hard. I think sometimes we have this sense of like, if I keep my focus on Christ, and if I'm striving to love others and love God, if I'm doing all the right stuff, then my life should be sunshine and rainbows, right? It's going to be easy and fun. It's always going to feel good. I'm always going to have everything I need. And that just isn't, that isn't the reality. The reality is we focus on Christ and sometimes things get harder. In this chapter alone, uh, the, the writer, Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, tells us of three different deaths. And Commentators and theologians will argue about whether or not these people died in this sequence or whether the writer here is just telling us that they died along the way to emphasize the fact that even in the midst of his recommitment or his renewal, this revival that's happening in Jacob's life, he's still facing turmoil, right? We, we read this earlier, but in 8, it talks about Rebecca's nurse, Deborah. If she died in sequence here, she was somewhere around 180 years old. That's possible, but some people think maybe that's not exactly when it happened, but rather he's saying there's a new chapter here. Verse 8 says, Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died and she was buried under an oak below Bethel, so he called its name Alan Bakuth. Uh, Alan Bakuth means oak of weeping, and if you're thinking about starting a Christian metal band, that would be a decent name, right? <laughs> oak of weeping. Dun, 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 dun. You, you get me. I worked hard on that joke, so I appreciate you guys acknowledging that. The first service, not so much. I think they were kind of bothered that I said Christian metal, so it's fine. Uh, 
We see here the death of Deborah in 16 through 19. We see the death of Rachel, Jacob's beloved wife. It says they journeyed, verse 16, from Bethel. And while they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor. She had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benoni, which means son of my sorrow. But his father called him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. So Rachel died and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. So we see the, the death of Deborah. We see the death of Rachel, his beloved wife. And then at the end of 35, we see the death of Isaac. And again, theologians aren't sure about whether that happened in sequence at the end of all of these events or if it had happened earlier. The, the point is... That renewal and revival being refocused at Bethel on the covenant and calling of God, cleansing yourself and purifying yourself and being obedient, doesn't doesn't preclude hardship and difficulty. If you look at verse 22, and it's one verse, and it's like you want more information because it's gross. 22 says, while Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Full stop. That's, like the, that's all we get of that particular story. We don't really hear anything else about that until, uh, until Jacob gives his pronouncements to his son. But, but what, we're, what most commentators guess is happening is that once Rachel dies, uh, Reuben, who's the firstborn, is worried because Leah, his mother, has never been the most favored wife. And so he goes and essentially sleeps with his mom. We'll put that in quotes because she was Rachel's hand servant, but one of, one of uh, Jacob's concubines. Reuben goes and sleeps with her essentially to defile her in his father's eyes so that he might prefer Leah, which was always their sort of goal. We, that, that's speculation. That's not in the text. But really, the text doesn't tell us anything about what went down other than this happened. Uh, Reuben will face the consequence of that later. But Jacob knew about it. That's all it says. My point here is, if you're expecting that in, in renewal, or if you're expecting that in revival, when you refocus yourself and put away your foreign gods, that everything's easy, it's not. We see hardship even in the midst of this chapter. But I will also point this out, that in the midst of the hardship that comes, we do absolutely still see hope. We see optimism for the future. I think it's interesting even that, that, that Jacob renames his new son. So his 12th son, uh, is, it, J- Rachel, is having him in the midst of dying. And she names him Benoni, which means son of my sorrow. And after her death, Jacob actually goes back and changes her name to son of my right hand or son of the south, which is, a, which is optimistic about the future, as opposed to allowing this child to be born and named for grief. And sorrow. He changes the name. That tells us something about his perspective. Genesis 35 will show us that Jacob has 12 sons, which sets up uh, the, the rest kind of the Old Testament narrative here uh, of God's covenant. God has fulfilled his promise. There's optimism and, optimism and hope. Even at the very end of 35, when Isaac dies, we see Esau and Jacob together for the burial. There's unity and, there, and there's, this, uh, there's this collaborative spirit that we hadn't seen earlier when they were at each other's throats or when they're running from each other. So we see God tap on Jacob's heart and say, man, we got to get back on track. We see Jacob respond by getting rid of the idols and leaving them behind, by cleaning himself up, putting on new clothes, being obedient to God and worshiping in there. We see God reaffirm his covenant, right? And, but we also still see hardship. We see pain, and yet there is hope and optimism in the middle of that. There's something I, I want to point out to you. When we think about this, it's easy for us to think about this or even think about our own lives. When we're talking about... Uh, 
renewal or revival and thinking of it in terms of like a, a, like a fresh start, if you will, almost like a, like a repeat. It could feel a little bit in looking at this that God is calling him to go back to Bethel and begin again, right? Like a, like a reset. I want to point out to you that that isn't the method that God uses and it's a misunderstanding even of our own lives. When God calls Jacob back to Bethel, he's not calling him to reset or to do a do-over. He's not asking him to try again. What he's calling him back to is progression, but a reminder of God's covenant. So, so Kidner, uh, one of the commentators, has said, this isn't a loop that Jacob's on. It's a spiral that goes deeper and deeper and deeper, right? I think in our own lives, sometimes we resist renewal or we resist revival because we feel like it's an admission of failure, that we're going back to the beginning and we're just starting again. But the, the journey that we're on as disciples is not one where you start again and you start again and you start again. The journey that we're, want, that we're on is one where you go back and you refocus yourself, but you proceed with an entirely new set of understandings because of what you've experienced. As Jacob goes into this next section of his life, he has experienced all of the drama with Laban and all of the drama with Rachel and Leah, all of the drama at at Shechem, all of the drama with Simeon and Levi. He's not the same man he was. He is starting again, refocused on who God has called him to be, but he is starting informed in a completely different way. This isn't a reset. It's a continuation. It's a progression, if you will. I'll I'll give you a couple of examples of this. Um, I started playing a... I'm a big video game guy. I started playing a game called Elden Ring. And if you're playing that, uh, you would be embarrassed to watch me play it. I die all the time, right? I'm, not, I'm playing it, but I'm not good at it. It's a very hard game. Um, basically, I die like eh, right around every 90 seconds I get killed while I'm playing this. And so if you're watching me play it, you watch me and I take my character with my sword and I go and try and kill a monster and it smashes me and then I respawn and I go back and it smashes me again. And I, you know, it's just me doing that. If you watch, you'd be like, why do you want to play this game? Like, why not play Mario Brothers or something where, you know, you can jump on stuff and hit a mushroom and it'll give you a coin. That feels more rewarding. I will tell you that while the game Elden Ring is very hard and I'm very not good at it, and I know that's not the right way to organize that sentence, what you don't see as a casual observer is that every time I respond, so every time the, the monster kills me or the bad guy you know, takes my shield away and hits me with it, uh, every time I respawn, I come to that fight, that same fight, informed a different way. Does that make sense? Because the last time he threw a fireball at me, and this time I know I'm not going to go on the left side because this guy throws fireballs. I'm going to come from the right. And then I come from the right, and he takes my shield away and bashes me with it. And I think, I've got to find a way to sneak up on this guy. So while I'm doing the same thing, I'm not doing it in the same way. Uh, You might hate video games, and you're frustrated that I even said I like them. So let me give you another illustration. Uh, When I got my motorcycle license, right? Everybody loves motorcycles. Uh, When I got my motorcycle license... Because I'm a, I ride a scooter, so before you think, wow, motorcycle, tough, nope, I'm a scooter rider. So when I went to get my motorcycle license, uh, you have to take a test. And I studied, I went to the classes, I did the whole thing, and I failed the test the first time, right? And the reason I failed the test the first time is that I didn't know at the time that the people at the DMV were going to try to trick me, right? Which they did. They were successful. They tried to trick me. And, and, but here's the thing. When I get to the counter, the lady says, yeah, you fail your test. You only get to take this twice. If you fail it again, you've got to do the whole written test again for your entire driver's license. So when I went in the second time, it might have looked to you from a distance like I was doing the same thing again. I wasn't. When I went and took the test the second time, while it looked like I was doing the same thing, I was a different guy. 
Because I came to the test understanding that there were going to be questions on the test that weren't in the book. There were going to be questions on the test that were written to try and trick you. And I was going to win, right? So while it looked like repetition, and it might have looked like a loop at the DMV to you from an outward experience or an outward view, internally, I came to the test the second time informed by my experience. I wasn't on a loop. I was on a spiral of growth. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, we're not on a loop. We're not starting fresh. There's no restart for us. There is progression and growth, right? Yes, you might have to go back. You might have to get rid of your foreign gods. You might have to clean yourself up and put on Christ anew. You might have to be obedient to think God is calling you to and worship him there. But that isn't a restart. That's forward movement toward conformity to the image of Christ. You're not in a loop. You're going deeper. You're going deeper, right? So we see in the call of God, and this isn't just something that Jacob wants to do. It's something God invites him to do. So I love even Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40, famous messianic passage. Isaiah 40 at the end says this, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. What Isaiah is saying here in this prophecy is that we will get tired. Even young men get tired. Even young men get worn out. But God has the strength, and he will renew us. We come to him, and he gives us the ability to soar like eagles because he renews us. And that's not a loop, it's a spiral. So that's Genesis 35, right? A renewal, revival for Jacob. A a time to to begin again with new understanding. Recommitted to the things that God has called him to. 36 is a genealogical record of of his brother Esau. And it's it's kind of boring reading. I'm not saying you shouldn't read it. In fact, I'm saying, I'm affirming you should read it. But if you were to read it this morning, and we're not going to spend a ton of time, and if you were to read it, there are a bunch of names there of people that kind of don't show up anywhere else. They're, they're the descendants of Esau. So just to give you a taste of this, Genesis 36.1 says, These are the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, Aholabama, the daughter of Ana, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, and Basemath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Neboath. And Ada bore to Esau Eliphaz, Basemath bore to Ruel, and Oholabama bore Jush. I like that name, Jush. Doesn't matter. Jalem and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. The, the chapter goes on like that, giving names of people that do, only appear here and don't appear otherwise. There is an interesting rabbit hole if you're the kind of person who likes to go down rabbit holes. The names of uh, Esau's wives that are listed here at the beginning of 36 are not identical to the names of Esau's wives we find earlier in the text. So if, you wanna, if you're the kind of person who likes to wrangle with that sort of thing, knock yourself out. What I see in 36 is this. God fulfills his promise to Abraham and Isaac by blessing the descendants of Esau. We talked about this before, but what we're going to see in this chapter is that Esau has descendants that come from his life. Not only does that, he's got chieftains, he's got kings, he's got tribes, right? There, he, he's got all of these things. There is, there is prosperity and there is faithfulness and love. There, there are great things that happen here power and prominence. But what we don't see in 36, for what it's worth, is any record of God. 
We don't hear anything about Esau's faith. We certainly don't hear about the faith of his descendants. In this list of kings and chiefs and tribes and descendants of Esau, the Edomites, we do hear a little bit of narrative that says he took his family and left the promised land, that he left Canaan and he went to Seir. Now, Joshua will say that, that God blessed him in Seir. I look at that and say, even, even the guys at Shechem were saying, hey, there's enough room for all of us to live together here. So Esau left the place that God had called him to. I'm not saying that Esau drifted, but all of us drift. What I can say conclusively is that if you follow the stories of the Edomites, there is a progressive drift where where God becomes less and less important to them. And in the future, what we see in the Edomites is that they become sometimes the opposers of Israel, that sometimes they become obstacles. As we see in the rebuilding of the temple, the Edomites kind of get in the way. They end up sort of taking, in some cases, kind of a villainous role, even though they prosper. I mean, we could look at the descendants of Esau and say, in some ways, they were blessed because while the descendants of Israel are going to go into famine and ultimately they're going to be enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, the descendants of Esau didn't deal with enslavement. They didn't deal with that same famine, right? So you could look at that and say, it seems like they had a pretty good deal. But while they had prosperity and kingship and all these other things, what they didn't have was was. The, the unseen things. And they drift further and further away from God to the point where they, they end up, I mean, even King Herod, for what it's worth, right, who was trying to kill Jesus, is an Edomite, right? So there's this drift over time. I want us to see, it's not a stark contrast, it's not like a black and white contrast, it's a subtle contrast between the, the, the priorities of what you care about It's possible in the world's eyes for you to be prosperous and to be powerful and to be wealthy. Esau's descendants have all of that. But what they don't have is what Jacob has, and that is is they're walking with God in an ongoing way. And there's a legacy to that. Not only does Jacob walk with God and renew his commitment to that, but his descendants walk with God, and his descendants walk with God, and his descendants walk with God. So there's a a long-term impact on rejecting the drift. Does that make sense? There's a long-term impact in rejecting the drift. Colossians 3, 1 says, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 says, We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I wonder for you and me today, and, and as I was preparing this message, I started to think, I wonder if where you sit today, you don't feel the drift. That maybe your passion for God's word has, has drifted. That maybe your love for your neighbor has drifted. I think for many of us, uh, for, for years and years, we lived in a place where people's politics and their social engagement, all these things were, were set up through the filter of who Christ is, if you will. You kind of look through a telescope and, and the lens of Christ is on this end and that's the way we see everything. But we live in a day and age in the last two, two and a half years where the telescope has been flipped and now people are looking through their politics to decide what Jesus was like or they're looking through their social causes to decide what Jesus was like. They're looking through their own desires and their own hungers and their own passions and, and we're focused on the temporal things and they are fueling the dream in our life, our fear and anxiety, our frustration, right? Our grief, 
Our sorrow, these things are fueling our frustration. And there is a call because Jacob's got some of that, right? There's a call from God, a knock on the door that says, can we just get back to Bethel where you've got your eyes on me and you remember that you are mine and I am yours. Can we, can we let that be the thing that drives us? It's not that Jacob's even going to be perfect going forward, but he's on this spiral where he's able to come back. The scripture calls us to consider not just our walk with God, but the impact of our walk upon God with other people. We're called to be ambassadors. Around here, we talk about having an influence on your circle. If there's drift in your life, and there is, and in mine, if there's drift in our lives, what do you suppose the impact of that will be on the people in our circles? Our children and our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. You think that they're going to be more faithful? It's unlikely. The drift will continue generationally. If we're not faithful to go, i got to get back to Bethel. i got to get back to the place where I was stoked about what God had for me. Stoked about being his daughter. Stoked about being his son. Stoked about caring for my neighbors who've never met Jesus, but can be reconciled to, to God through him. Stoked about service and worship and sacrifice and love for God and love for others. i got to get back to this place. We have to be people who are willing to give up our foreign gods and be revived. It's interesting. And this, I'll finish here. Uh, I've mentioned Joshua before. You, maybe if you've been around the church for a long time, you're familiar with Joshua's big speech, right? At the end of his life in Joshua 24. It's the one where he comes to the people and he says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You heard that one before? Yeah. It's like a, it's like a classic, you know, Bible speech. Uh, you know where he delivers that speech? At Shechem. At Shechem. It says in Joshua 24 at the beginning that at Shechem, Joshua gathers all of the people of God. And the first thing he does is rehearse with them the things that God has done. God made a covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. He delivered us, right? We, we were saved from famine and then we were enslaved, but he brought us out. And he, he's given us victory over the Amorite. He goes into this long whole thing. And then at the end of that, he says, here we are at Shechem. And I, and I absolutely guarantee you that he's thinking about Jacob. And he looks at the people. This is Joshua 24, 14. Joshua says this to the people of God. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who did those great signs in our sight, preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord for he is our God. Joshua gets in front of the people and he says, hey, here we are at Shechem. And I'm reminded of the moment when God knocked on the door of our forefather Jacob's heart and said, you've got to put away the, the, the foreign gods because they're causing a drift. Can we get back to Bethel? And Joshua looks at the people and he says, hey, God is calling us as well to make a choice. Where are we going to focus our attention? Who are we going to be? What is going to drive us? And, and this morning, Fullerton Free, I've got to tell you, I, I want to put the same question to us. I want to put the same question to us because I, I imagine if your life's anything like mine, that, that if you look inside, you'll see that the last two and a half, three years have created some drift. Maybe it's pain. Maybe it's anxiety. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's sorrow. Maybe it's confusion. I, I don't know. But, but not only do we have currently like personal drift, but what that stacks up to in our world is that we get social drift. 
We get corporate drift. We get church drift. And I don't just mean church drift at this local church. I mean church drift in all the churches all around, right? The church local and the church global and the church universal. And there has to be a moment where we come back to the scriptures and we remember that we don't want to drift. We want to keep our eyes on Jesus. We want to love God and love others. We want to make that the main thing. And so I'm, I'm calling the question this morning of whether or not you will join me. Whether or not in this season we can be a body of believers who could say, you know what, we're going to put away the foreign gods. We're going to clean ourselves up. We're going to put on Jesus. We're going to go to the place he's called us to go. Not just for the sake of our individual spiral, but for the sake of our corporate growth. Christ revealed to us and in us and by us. That we might look at our lives and go, you know what, there's been some drift in me. There's been some drift in us. There's been some drift in Christians. Let's get back to Bethel. Let's get back to that place where our focus is on God and what he's done. We want to be people who hear him, who put away or purge the foreign gods in our lives, whatever those look like, who who pursue holiness, who put on Christ, who obey God and worship him out of a desire to, to be renewed and to be revived. Not just once. It's not a thing that will happen once. It's a thing that we'll need to come back to again and again and again and again. Because no matter how committed we are today to following Jesus faithfully, just like we were committed to not having french fries in our Nissan Armada, the drift will come. But it's a spiral we're on. And I want to be on that spiral with you, you and me, us, family, together. We can't let ourselves drift. Not in this season. We've got to come back. Because... God wants to use us to put him on display in this neighborhood and around the world. Would you bow your heads with me? In the quietness of this moment, uh, I want to ask you to, to do something. I want you to take like a kind of a personal inventory. And I don't want you to think about what you're going to do later or who's sitting next to you or whatever. Just in the quietness of right now, would you just look into your own life and, and do an inventory? And Can you assess drift in your life? Places where your passions grow cold. Places where your heart for service and sacrifice has utterly disappeared. Places where you're in the midst of gossip or division or hatred or greed or pride or any of those things. And then beyond that assessment, I wonder if you would listen for the Spirit of God. I wonder if you would listen to the Spirit of God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever that might be tapping on the door of your heart to say, Hey, Darren, can we get back to Bethel? Can we get back to that place where you looked in my face and you were stoked? Where you heard my voice and you couldn't wait to see what I was going to do next? Can we get back there? Because there's been some drift. And in this room and in this moment, as a family, we talk about that a lot around here. I wonder if you would have the courage to do something declarative. And if you're here and you would say, you know what? I I can see drift in my life. I can see drift in my circle and I got to get back to Bethel. I want to be—I want to be hungry. I want to be excited about God's voice. And I got to get rid of these gods. And I got to put on Jesus and move. If that's you, and, and you feel the Spirit of God prompting you, I wonder if you'd stand to your feet right where you're at. So I got to get back on track. Thanks. And for what it's worth, I mean, I was already standing, but I'm standing with you. I'm right there with you. If that's you, will you join us?
God, my prayer for us is that you would enable us to hear your voice as Jacob did, to understand where you're calling us, to understand what it is that needs to be laid down and what it, needs, what it is that needs to be picked up, and that you would help us to remember that that's not something we do in isolation. It's something, not something we do as individuals. It's something we have the joy of doing as a family, as a body, as your church. And I pray for each of these who are on their feet and I pray for those who maybe were uh, hesitant to stand, but that you're moving in. I thank you for every person in this room and the way you work in us individually. And I pray that God, that you would, that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit to be a loving community, united in sacrifice and living like Christ for the glory of God in this day and the next. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to have you open your eyes because I want you to look around and see the people that are standing with you. See me standing here with you. We're in this together, right? God has put us in this place at this time to make a difference and, and it's exciting to walk that road together.